You didn't think we were going to go all 25, did you? But we went there. And you waited. So hello again. As I said before, I'm Doug Moss. I'm one of the teaching pastors uh, here at St. John. And uh, really excited to kick off this series as we talk about in the waiting. Uh, and as I was thinking about this and, and figuring out kind of what the entry point is, what, what occurred to me as, as we begin truly December, uh, you know, uh, Black Friday's done, Cyber Monday's done. Like we, we truly are in Christmas season. Uh, was just to realize in my own life, at least, that Christmas has gotten much less joyful uh, and magical for me over the years. Uh, and so I don't know if you relate to that. I, I hear anecdotally at least some of you do. Uh, but I, I was wrestling with why is that? Why is it that this time of joy and peace uh, is not so much uh, for us today now that we're, we're in December? And as I was thinking about that, I, I think I know the answer. And it's, I don't think it's at least the beginning of the answer. And it's not just the stress and busyness of the season. Uh, it's not just uh, finances and the consumerism that's overtaken Christmas. Uh, and it's not that, that I think that there's some war on Christmas that's going on in, in our culture. Uh, I don't think it's ultimately any of those things as the reason for why Christmas is not as joyful as we think it should be. I think I do know the reason, Uh, so I'm going to tell you what's going to happen this morning. In just a second, I'm going to tell you the reason why Christmas isn't joyful. You are then going to think I am a naive simpleton, and then I'm going to spend the next 25 minutes trying to persuade you why I'm not an idiot. Uh, So that's that's how I envision this morning going. You can come along for the ride, Um, but as I thought about it, here's what I think is going on. I don't I think the reason Christmas is not as magical and joyful is for one reason, which is we as a society, as a community, as a church, as individuals, we have forgotten how to wait. We've forgotten how to wait. And while you may not think that's a sufficient answer for losing the joy of Christmas, I I have to think you probably don't Uh, disagree with that statement. I I think you can look around at our lives and recognize as a culture all of the different ways we don't wait anymore. I mean, I know when I was growing up, you know, cartoons were only on one day of the week. You had to wait till Saturday and then you had to get up early. But today, my kids, my kids have Netflix. My kids have every cartoon they could ever want on demand. Uh, in fact, we were on vacation recently, we were staying in a hotel room, and they were shocked that this TV in the hotel room didn't have all of their favorite cartoon shows. They had no idea how to wait for that. We were at Thanksgiving recently and uh, watching football, and, and, uh, and, they were, and my kids don't know what a commercial is, and they were very upset that this thing would come on and interrupt the thing we were watching. They don't know how to wait anymore. I think about um, shopping. You know, it used to be uh, you'd, you'd have to send in a mail order catalog and it'd be like six to eight weeks. And, uh, and now we have Amazon with two-day delivery. And not just Amazon with two-day delivery, but now we've got Amazon Fresh. You can get your groceries the same day. You don't even have to go to the store anymore and, you know, mingle with other people. Like, it can just happen to you and you can get, get these groceries 
or our lives, you know, when we're, when we're driving all the places we're going, work and school and home, and, uh, and so much of, of my drive, at least, is spent figuring out the fastest way, like which lane is the best lane to be in, and oh, that one light always backs up this one lane. And uh, my wife, Mia, was telling me about um, this movement of people that are like, it's called like a slowness movement. Uh, and this one guy in the slowness movement is saying that he is now a right lane driver, and that wherever he's going, he just stays in the right lane and just goes whatever speed the right lane is going and, and doesn't change lanes or do anything. And, and my first thought was, I would beat that guy home like by 10 minutes. What a chump. I, I don't want to slow down. What's the point of that? Wait, you know, waiting in traffic. Or, or who's done this one? You know, you, you go to your favorite Starbucks, you know, for your, your daily fix and, and you notice that the line, you know, like the drive through line is all the way backed out in the parking lot. And then you remember that there's a mobile app now and you can just type in your mobile order and then you can just walk in past everybody else waiting in line and they'll have your drink sitting on the counter for you. You can, you, can, you know, walk past all those uh, people that are waiting in line. <laughs> I got my drink faster. Well, yeah, you've done that. Or it became really personal to me uh, a few weeks ago because uh, we went on vacation. Uh, my parents did a really nice thing. They, they blessed my family. They, they took me and my wife and all of our kids, they took us to Disney World. First trip to Disney World for, for my kids, for my wife. Uh, and, uh, and it was this amazing thing. But what you need to know, though, about my family, and especially my dad, my dad's an Air Force uh, group commander. Like, I mean, he, he commanded squadrons and pilots and, and, and planes. And so when my dad uh, says that he's going to take my family to Disney, we don't do Disney World. We conquer Disney World. Every night, my dad and I would have the tactical session where we'd walk through the next day's rides. And we'd have the paper and we'd have it all mapped out. And we'd went online and we'd strategically used fast passes and looked at all these things. And so that, like, we knew how the day would go. And so my dad, we, we'd have this big powwow with all the adults. And we'd be like, all right, here it is. Magic hour starts at 8. 8.02, we're meeting Mickey Mouse. By 8.08, we're done with Mickey. We're moving on. We've got to get to the back of the park. We're going to do Seven Dwarves Roller Coaster. We're going to walk past all those suckers who stop at Tomorrowland. They don't know that's where all the crowds go. We're going to skip that crowd. We're going to do the Seven Dwarves roller coaster ride. And then when we get off, if the estimated wait time is less than 25 minutes, we're going to do it again because that ride is normally a two-hour wait. So we're going to hit that. And then we're going to head over here to this part of the park. And then my wife is like, can I stop for Starbucks at any point here? No, you cannot stop for Starbucks. If you don't know this, the Starbucks line at Disney World is the longest line. It's longer than any ride, which tells you something, I think, about Disney World. And we built this trip uh, around minimizing any possible wait time. We went from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. every night. We conquered the heck out of Disney, and it was magical. And a little stressful, but magical. And as I describe all these things, I'm sure you can connect with me. I'm sure you can relate, and, and, and this sounds familiar to your own life in some way, shape, or form. But, but I think maybe you're wondering, what's the problem? Why does it matter uh, that I, I, I find a way to cheat the line at Starbucks? Why does it matter that I get home two minutes earlier uh, you know, why does it matter that I buy things a little sooner than maybe I could have otherwise afforded? I mean, doesn't the early bird get the worm? 
I mean, isn't that our national identity and personality? You know, all those slackers over there in Europe working these 30-hour work weeks. You know, we're driven over here. You know, we work hard. We bust our butts. Uh, We don't slow down. We don't wait. And so even while you might agree that our, our culture doesn't know how to wait anymore, you might not necessarily see why that's a big deal. If anything, that might be the key to our actual success. And what I'd say to you is, if you actually look into sociology and, and the human body and mind and psyche and how we're wired and designed to be, you will see over and over and over again that we as a creature need to wait. Study after study reinforces that waiting is crucial to our, our happiness, our fulfillment, our lives. And I won't kind of throw all those at you today. I'll just, I'm just going to pick one for the sake of this morning. There's one experiment I want to share with you. It's called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. And this experiment, uh, a bunch of evil, awful people take children, children, and they put them in a chair and they put a marshmallow on a plate in front of the child. And then that person says to the kid, guess what? This marshmallow is for you. It's your marshmallow. But hang on, I have to go do something real quick. And if you can wait, when I get back and you don't eat the marshmallow, I'll let you have two marshmallows. And then the psychopath leaves the room and leaves that poor kid sitting there with a marshmallow staring them down and says, wait. And if you want the most adorable and anxious few minutes of your life, you should Google the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment and watch it. But I'll just give you a 30-second taste of it right now this morning. This is what happens. she didn't make it. She lost it right at the end. And so that original experiment was a longitudinal experiment, which meant that they then tracked those kids and they followed them throughout their lives. And what they saw was the kids who could wait, the kids who could wait for the second marshmallow did better in school, tended to have more successful careers, made more money, were generally more fulfilled in their lives. The kids that caved, the kids that couldn't wait, you know, tended not to you know, measure up as well to, to their peers uh, in those things. And, and so this is just one example of many that just shows we need to be able to wait. That is a skill we must have, we must develop for our own happiness, fulfillment, and success in life. And so here's why that scares the bejeebers out of me. I have not waited for anything in 10 years. To the month, I know the day. There was a day 10 years ago where I stopped waiting. And that was the day that Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. 10 years ago, for Christmas, 2007, I got my first iPhone. And since that moment, I have not waited a single second of my life. I used to have moments of waiting throughout my day. I used to have wait in line. And, and now I, I don't wait in line anymore. I play Angry Birds in line. 
Uh, I used to have moments of, of reflection built in my day because you use the restroom, and that would be a time uh, of reflection and quietness, but I don't meditate in the bathroom anymore. I play words with friends in the bathroom. <laughs> so I'm not being hyperbolic when I tell you it's been 10 years since I've had to wait for anything. I myself have forgotten how to wait. So with the phone, I distract myself, but that's not the only way that we, that we have lost this skill. Uh, my wife and I, we talk about this all the time. So many times, we'll do things just to short-circuit the waiting process. You know, maybe there's something going on that, that we have to wait for uh, and we should wait for, but no, we're just going to do something. And maybe it's not the right thing. Maybe, in fact, it's the wrong thing, but it's better to do something, even if it's the wrong thing, than have to go through the agony of waiting. I see that especially in relationships or relationships where maybe there's, there's some tension or just, you know, something, you know, it's a weird thing that went down and, and things are a little uh, rocky between me and someone. And, and probably the best way to handle that would be just to wait and, and, and just continue to reinforce that relationship and put best construction on them and just kind of see how it all falls out and, you know, in the wash as we continue to interact. But, but no, I don't do that. I march into, you know, whoever it is and I tell her, hey, you really hurt my feelings or you messed me up because I'd rather do something, say something than just maybe be patient with a relationship and let it play out. You know, we either distract ourselves, we, we, we short-circuit the weight with, with action, I mean, that's what traffic is, right? We're, we're short-circuiting. And I think ultimately what it all comes down to is this. The reason that we don't wait anymore and that we fill it instead with these other things, with distractions and, and reflexive action, is because we desire more than anything control. We want to have control over our lives, and a wait is a moment where we're not in control. When you go to the DMV, you're not in control of how long you're going to be there. Sadly, the lowest paid government operative is in control of how long you're going to be there. And so we distract ourselves. We, we do something else. We, we, we find ways to establish control over our lives. And yet... I think if we're honest with ourselves, we don't really have control. All these things that we do, whether it's cutting the line at Starbucks or shifting lanes a bunch, it it makes us feel like we're in control, but actually what's going on is we're trying to perpetuate the illusion of control. And, and, And that illusion becomes especially thin and starts to fall apart when the real things hit. I'm not talking traffic and lines at Starbucks but I'm talking when you watch a family member who's making these terrible, toxic choices and their life is spinning out of control and you know where this ends and and you know how they're hurting themselves and you know the right answer. You know what they could do differently instead, but if you tell them, they alienate, they distance, they push back. You know how you could help them turn back to good life and health, but they don't want to hear from you. And in that moment, what do you do? But wait, you don't have control over your loved ones as much as you wish you did. You can't force them to do things that they don't want to do if they're not not in a place to do it. Or or those of you that's been a rough economy, those of you that have experienced joblessness, uh, you know, or not having enough money, and and you can do everything. You can go to job seminars, you can network, you can can practice your interviewing skills. Uh, You know, we even have an employment workshop that we run here a couple times a year, and it's it's so helpful and beneficial, and, and yet you do it and the job just doesn't come. And you think, well, what else can I do? I've made myself as desirable an employee as I can be. And, and, and in that moment, you realize that, that the control you thought you had is, is an illusion. 
Or those of us that, that, that want nothing more than to build and start a family, and, and we want uh, you know, the child, the supposed promise, where God himself said, you know, be fruitful and multiply and have babies, and, and babies are a joy and a delight, and these people try, and they try, and I've had friends, and, and they've gone to doctors, and they've done everything that science knows how to do, and the baby doesn't happen. And in those moments, it's not just something trivial about shaving time off your commute. In those moments, you have to recognize that that there are things that are outside of our control and we have nothing to do but wait for them. And maybe we can distract ourselves. Maybe we can busy ourselves with other things. Maybe we can find ways to try to short-circuit the process. But, But can we take a second and maybe recognize that waiting is healthy partly because it removes the illusion of control? And so as we dive into the Bible today, I want you to think about it from this perspective, this idea that maybe waiting is a good thing, and maybe we don't have as much control as we think we do. So let's go to the text. Our sermon this morning, our topic is, uh, is in the waiting, taking it personally, and we're in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to follow along. Uh, if you've got your phone or a tablet, you know, again, follow along on that, or in our Pew Bibles, it's on page 1025. Uh, But so this is the beginning of the Christmas story. So here we go. We're going to pick it up. Verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, uh, and Elizabeth, you might not know who that is, but you're going to find out a lot about her in two weeks. She's going to be week three of our In the Waiting series. You're going to hear a lot about Elizabeth. But in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. But notice Mary's response. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. First seven verses of our story. And what I want you to notice is just take a step back on this story because this is very familiar to most of us. Most of us have heard the Christmas story every year. And so we hear this and we think, oh good, this is the beginning. And and this is going to end with shepherds and wise men and and a baby in a manger and cute animals all around. and, and, And it's this awesome part of the story. But what I want you to notice is that was not Mary's reaction to this story. We have that reaction because we have 2,000 years of hindsight. We know the end of the story. We know that it's going to be this beautiful thing, silent night, and all these amazing things happening. What she knows is she might die. She was greatly troubled at these words, partly because in that culture, she was betrothed to Joseph. She wasn't married to Joseph. And someone who's betrothed and not married who gets pregnant is an adulteress. And it would have been perfectly right and good according to the law of the time for her to be stoned to death. What the angel is telling her is not good news to her. It's saying that whatever control she thought she had over her life, whatever plans and visions, you know, she had a husband all lined up, she had a picture of how her life was going to be, and that picture was gone in a moment. Her control was gone. 
Not only that, it wasn't even immediate. It was this period of waiting because she's going to have to wait nine months and that's going to be nine months of shame and fear and agony. So it's not like he's even doing something in this moment that's hard. He's doing something that is going to be a prolonged period of waiting that's hard. And not only nine months, it's going to be 30 plus years before Jesus' ministry of salvation actually comes to fruition. There is a lot of control that is gone, a lot of waiting that is being forced upon Mary in this moment. So I want you to put yourself in her shoes. Don't just hear this as the beginning of a nice, great Christmas story that we all know and love. Hear this as a woman whose life has just been ruined by most people's standards. And by putting yourself in her shoes, now let's look at Mary's response. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And I want you to notice this word. I'm not going to talk about it right now, but in a little bit it's going to come up. That the power of the Most High God will overshadow Mary. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. And here's her response. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Warren Wearsby calls this moment uh, in the Christmas story, Mary's Surrender. Because what you'll notice is for a woman who's just lost all control of her life, for a woman uh, who is now going to be experiencing a prolonged time of waiting and potential persecution, this is a pretty miraculous response. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary surrenders to God. And I think she gives us the key to why this story is important, why this is part of the Christmas story, why waiting is so important, is because for all of our attempts to have control, that we have the illusion of control, Mary does something here that I think we all need to focus on for a moment, which is this. Mary surrenders control. She doesn't cling to her own strategy. I mean, after all, uh, when an angel of God confronts you, whatever five-year strategy plan you had just went out the window. She doesn't argue. She doesn't protest. She asks one simple question, and then she says, I'm the Lord's servant. She surrenders control. And I think that's so powerful because it starts to get at maybe why this waiting is so important for you and me as human beings. You know, that Stanford experiment, it exposes that there's a, some correlation, but we don't really know cause and effect. I mean, why is it that waiting equates with all of these better outcomes for our life? And this is where I think we start to unpack and get a peek at what might be going on. You see, Mary surrenders control. And then something happens. I want to share with you a clip. This is my favorite Christmas movie. It's not technically a Christmas movie, but it's the movie I watch every December. And in this movie, uh, some people get stuck in an elevator. The elevator malfunctions, 
And they do what you would normally expect. This is the days before cell phones. And, uh, and so they do everything. They, you know, first they push all the buttons on the elevator trying to get it to move again. You know, they call, there's the emergency phone. They call the phone person and, and ask them to send help. Uh, at one point, uh, they even all say, all right, you know, we're all going to jump at the same time. And they all jump in the elevator trying to trick the elevator that no one's in there so that the doors might open. Uh, you know, they, they resort to some of the silliest, most foolish things. But then finally this moment comes where they surrender to their situation. They give up control. They stop trying to get out. They stop trying to fix it. They stop trying to escape. And they just surrender to the fact that they are stuck in an elevator. And then this moment happens. If I ever get out of here, I'm going to start speaking to my mama. wonder what she's doing right this very minute. If I ever get out of here, I'm marrying Orit. I love her. I should marry her. I don't know what's been stopping me. If I ever get out of here, I'm having my eyes lasered. If I ever get out of here... What? I came home tonight and got into the elevator to go to my apartment. An hour later, I got out of the elevator and Brinkley and I moved out. Suddenly everything had become clear. In this moment where they're forced to wait where they're forced uh, to actually take a moment of calm and meditation and not just distract or take any action, some things became clear, right? One, one woman decides to repair a relationship with her mother. You know, one man decides it's time to finally marry this girl who loves him. And Tom Hanks learns that he's married to a terrible, obnoxious person, or dating a terrible, obnoxious person, uh, and moves out. And if you were just looking for a life lesson this morning uh, or a way to just navigate the holidays and the stress a little better, hopefully that'd be enough for you, that you know, maybe you need to take some more time, force some waiting on yourself and some meditation. But what if there's something more going on? What if there's something more to this whole waiting thing than just, oh, we need to reflect a little bit. We need to leave some space, some white space for epiphanies and, uh, and, and reflection on our own lives. What if, in fact, waiting is not just surrendering to something impersonal, like in an elevator? You know, it, it was an accident that they were in that elevator. There was no grand design. But what if there was a grand design? What if there was something personal that we were surrendering to? You see, when Mary surrenders control, she's not just doing it in this kind of defeatist, you know, vague, well, just whatever the fates are doing. She was surrendering control to a person of God. She was engaged in a relationship with a creator who said to her, this is going to be hard. You're about to go through something that was not your plan. It is outside of your control. It was not what you were looking to do. But it is the means by which I am going to do a mighty work in you. You see, what you may not know is that Mary was part of a people who were struggling They had been captured and enslaved and subjugated by a lot of um, other nations and empires. They were treated as second-class citizens and persecuted. And her people had been crying out for generations for a savior. 
And I think that what they had expected and hoped when they were asking for that is that God would kind of swoop in with this conquering king or, or general and would just kind of do a quick fix of their situation, right? You know, conquer the conquerors, release them from their, their slavery and subjugation, and just be done with it. But instead, God did something personal. He came to one young woman and he said, I'm going to do something amazing to save you, to save all your people. But it's going to involve some waiting. It's not an instant fix. And what you see uh, in a little bit in this story, but throughout the rest of scripture, if you look at Mary, Mary did something consistently, like three or four times it mentions it, that Mary pondered what God was doing in her life. She didn't distract herself. You know, thankfully, they didn't have iPhones in 0 BC. Uh, she didn't uh, just try to short-circuit with, by taking some action and doing something different. She received what God was doing in her life, and she pondered it. And she thought, what is happening? Why is God doing it? What is he doing? And she actually took the time to wait and reflect and to see if there was growth for her, that maybe God was doing something in her own life. I think it's not an accident that we as human beings are designed uh, that, that it is nine months of pregnancy before we have a child. I think so much of that is because we need those nine months to grow and develop and become the kind of person who can be trusted with a baby. Uh, I know I couldn't initially when we found out. Uh, I was mostly annoyed that we had to cancel our ski trip you know, when we found out we were pregnant. Uh, I had to take nine months to make my peace that I wasn't going to see my friends two or three times a week for basketball anymore. Like I, it took me nine months to grow and be ready to be a dad. And I think so many of the seasons in our life, if we trust that God is actually doing something personally for us, for our own growth and development, that waiting is not an accident. It's not just something that we have to endure or get through or distract. It's actually for our own good. It's for our own growth. You know, in that moment where you're watching a loved one uh, ruin their lives, what is God doing in your life and theirs? How is God showing you to surrender to his control and to, and to admit that you actually don't have the power in a situation that you would like to have? If you are looking for a job and that time is wrong, you know, what is God asking you to develop in your own life? Are there, are there habits or passions that you're given the opportunity to pursue, ways to better yourself and grow that you wouldn't do if you were in the middle of the grind and immediately had the next job? Or like I said, with a family where God is doing something in you, preparing you for this thing. See, I think Mary wasn't ready for a savior right then. I think God's people weren't ready for a savior. And even 30 years later, they weren't going to be ready. But God was doing something in that waiting. He actually had a plan for them and for their own good. You know who had a really great time at Disney World? My kids. They had an amazing time. And it's not just because they're kids and they have this childlike wonder and delight. I think it's because they actually, through the force of the situation, surrendered control over the trip. They didn't know how many hours grandpa and I put in planning things. They didn't know all the work that we spent making sure that we could craft this trip and design it so it would be the most amazing experience for them. All they knew was that this trip happened and amazing and wonderful things happened to them. My youngest daughter, Ember, she's three years old, she told us the first day the number one thing that she wanted to do, the, the top pre- you know, preference for her is she wanted to meet Princess Merida. 
And I said to her, sweetie, you will meet Princess Merida in three days when statistically the lines for her is a little bit shorter. (laughs) But we're going to do it. And she was good with that. She said, okay. She'd expressed this need and this desire. And then she trusted that even though we said, it's not going to be today, but you will meet her and it's going to be great, great and wonderful. She surrendered control of that moment. She sat back and waited for all the other things that were happening first. And so that one day we would see Princess Merida and we did. And when I think about Christmas and, and why we've lost some of the joy, I said we'd get back here and hopefully over the course of the last 25 minutes, I've brought some of you along and persuaded you to my way of thinking. I think the difference is this, that I used to not be in control of Christmas. I used to have to rely completely on my parents and my school and my teachers to uh, initiate that Christmas season. I'd have to wait for my parents to say, all right, now we're bringing out the nativity and we get to see the sheep and all the things. For my parents to say, here's the advent calendar. And we didn't have one of those chocolate advent calendars. It was a chocolateless advent calendar, but we loved it anyway. We loved counting down. We loved this moment that, that presents at some point were going to show up under the tree. And we couldn't open them yet, but we could shake them. And we could imagine and dream and guess and wonder what was inside the wrapping. See, the waiting was forced upon us and we just naturally surrendered control. And when I look at the way we do Christmas now, I think what we've lost is the ability to wait. Because what it means is we've lost, we've forgotten how to surrender control. We need to make Christmas amazing. We need to make it special. We need to buy the right presents for the right people and do it all on a budget uh, and make sure that we create special experiences for our children and our family. And we just can't let go of control. And we just can't wait. But just like my children trusted that the waiting was a personal thing, that someone that they loved was in control over their lives, just as Mary saw and trusted that God was personally bringing a savior, not just for her, but for the world, if she would just relinquish control and wait, I think we could get back some of that joy and magic of Christmas if we wouldn't just rush right to the end if we wouldn't try to cling to all of our control, if we would let it unfold, listen to the Christmas songs on the radio, buy what presents you need to buy, but to remember that we're not there yet. We won't be there for 22 more days. But in those 22 days, God might be doing something for our hearts. He might be preparing us for that baby in a manger in a way that we never would have seen coming. And maybe it's broader than just Christmas for you. If there is something in your life that you are waiting on, that you are desperate for a savior, for a rescue, for God to come through in a big way, maybe you can surrender that control. And you can trust that he's doing something powerful in you and through you in that time of waiting. And I can't promise you when it might be done. I can't promise you when God will come through. What I can promise you is he is with you intimately and personally in that waiting. And he is doing something powerful in you that you might never have guessed if you had just skipped right to the end of whatever it was you wanted. For the next 22 days, I'm going to try to surrender some control. And I hope you'll join me in that and trust that God will not let us down. Amen. It's easy for me to say this, but if you are anything like me, then you know that we as human beings, we struggle. 
and that we can look at moments in our own lives, periods of waiting, where we did not want to surrender, where we wanted to take charge, wrest control back from God, live out our vision for our lives, and put God's vision in its place because we don't have time for that. But if you're like me, if you are the person who has not truly waited in a very long time, if you are someone who has distracted and short-circuited the waiting process by just doing anything, something to fill the time instead of reflecting what God has done, then let me share with you this good news this morning, that while you might be impatient, while you might have forgotten how to wait, God has never stopped being with you. He is with you now, He is with you in whatever you are waiting, and he is personally doing something powerful in your life. And if you're willing to let him, he is there right now. And so I invite you to surrender with me, to relinquish that control, and to ask God to do a mighty work in and through your own waiting seasons. Amen. And to help with that, to reinforce that, I'll invite you to join me in this next portion of our service, which is that when I tell you that God is personal, that's not theoretical, that's not some feel-good advice, that's not just some spiritual platitude, but I'm telling you that God himself is here this morning, that he was invited in and he is right now in this place. And one of the ways we know that, one of the ways we can rely on that is that he makes it real and physical. He gives us the opportunity to taste and see that he is with us personally in this waiting. And so I remind you of a night 2,000 years ago when our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the New Testament, shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. While we might have to wait for things in our life, we never have to wait for God's presence in our life. He is here this morning, and he invites you to come and join him because he is here for you. Now, in a moment, we're going to do communion, uh, but we're going to do one thing slightly different than what we normally do. We usually sing a couple of songs. This morning, we're just going to sing one song. And then after that song, I invite you to take a few minutes and sit and wait. Don't just start thinking ahead to the to-do list. I know we all have busy lives, and it's Sunday, and we've got all these things that we've got to wrap up before the week starts tomorrow. Don't just uh, be distracted by kids and other people in your seats. Don't just sing along with, with a song and get lost, but take a few moments that we provide for you to wait and to ask yourself this question in the waiting, how is God personally doing something in my life?